Yeah. I think we'll get started. Thanks so much for coming on this beautiful, warm evening. Um, I'm Charlotte Day. I'm the director at Monash University Museum of Art, and I'm really pleased to welcome you to tonight's um, Boiler Room, the last one for our year. Um, and it's really beautiful that we could have it here at M Pavilion. Um, this lecture is uh, by Mary Reed Kelly and Patrick Kelly, and we're very pleased to be able to welcome them to Melbourne for the first time. And it will be convened by Sophie, Sophie Nezik. Uh, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Yulikit Willem as the traditional custodians of the land in which we meet. The Yulikit Willem are part of the Bunurung, one of the five major language groups of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Um, Mary and Patrick have been here for a week now and have been undertaking a number of artist visits and visits with curators and colleagues um, they did a talk at Artspace in Sydney on the weekend and they're with us this week so we're very excited that they could join us and also have a taste of um, Australian culture and institutions and artists. Uh, they're actually here for a very particular reason too because they're, one of their works is in our current exhibition called The Humours which has been curated by Hannah Matthews and includes their work called The Thong of Dionysus. If you haven't seen the work, you need to come before Saturday, 5pm. Um, that's the last day of the exhibition and I really encourage you to come and see it if you haven't. Mary and Patrick are collaborators in life and work. Um, they create videos that combine painting, performance, poetry to tell surreal stories inspired by history and mythology. Played by the artists acting multiple roles, their characters speak in poetic verse, filled with wordplay and puns to tell stories that imagine unrecorded histories. Um, and I've found it interesting spending the last, I suppose, eight, nine, ten weeks with the work. The more you spend with it, the more the kind of nuance of their language and the way it's delivered um, kind of works over you. Yeah, it's really impressive work. Mary and Patrick's first museum solo exhibition in the UK, We Are Ghosts, recently opened at the Tate Liverpool and includes a major new commission in the body of the sturgeon, as well as an earlier work, This Is Awful, which won the Boulois, how do you say that, Boulois Prize at Art Basel in 2016. And you might be showing a bit of... We're showing the whole thing. Yeah, showing the whole work, so that's good. Um, their videos have been exhibited in solo exhibitions at the Hammer Museum, Los Angeles, ICA Boston, Site Santa Fe, Kunsthal Bremen Museum M in Leuven and the new Kunstverein in Vienna, as well as numerous group exhibitions. They live and work in upstate New York. Uh, so tonight we're very pleased that they'll actually present firstly on their practice but then be um, joined by Sophie Nezik who will convene this evening's presentation. Sophie is a Melbourne-based visual artist and scholar. Her research focuses on the aesthetics and metaphysics of transparency, virtuality, immaterialism, memory, temporality and sound and she also has a developing interest in humour. And um, We're very pleased that Sophie actually wrote... Um, and it's a piece that um, you know very well worth a look at. 
I've got a few special thank yous. Firstly, to the M Pavilion team for hosting and managing our event tonight. In particular, Jesse French, Sarah Savage, Etta Curry, Brendan McCleary and Sam Redstone. Also like to thank Mick Marinucci from McLean Sound and Takeshi Kondor for providing expert AV support and videography. Can't do it without them. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge our Boiler Room presenting partner is the Saturday paper. So I hope everyone's not in too much sun. If you are getting too much sun on you, just move a little bit. Um, and I'll hand over now to Mary and Patrick. Please join me in welcoming them. Thank you so much, Charlotte. And um, it's just, it's been great. This is our first visit to Australia. So thank you so much for um, yeah, coming to join us. Um, so we're going to present a little bit about um, uh, our research practice that goes into the films. And uh, Pat will present some about uh, the production of the films, which is kind of um, what you do. And um, then we'll show a film and then have some talking. So uh, on the screen is um, some uh, of the characters from the first four films we made together. And these four films uh, were all set in the historical context of the First World War. And um, so the, the characters are uh, an aviator up here in the top left corner that was based on uh, Snoopy, the cartoon character. Of course, some of you might know that Snoopy has um, a World War I fantasy where he does dog fighting um, and fights with the Red Baron. Um, there's a, a nurse and a sailor and um, a medical officer. And so um, when, there was a couple things that we took from kind of exploring the First World War uh, in depth um, that kind of has continued to influence the rest of our films, um, even when they're not uh, in a specific historical setting uh, like, like the First World War. And one was the importance of poetry. Because if you want to understand the First World War, you really um, can't do it without reading a significant portion of, of poetry because it's a really critical um, expression um, of the era. Um, and one reason it's so important is because it was very broad-based. It wasn't an elite activity solely. There was a lot of um, poetry being written um, by all kinds of people with all different experiences. Very fam famously, poetry was um, written by the soldiers uh, in the trenches, uh, talking about these really brand-new uh, horrific experiences of trench warfare. There was music hall, and so... Uh, things like rhyme, wordplay um, became very important uh, to us. And uh, I guess I'll say since um, I kind of start a film, when we start a film, I try to um, find a character that I want to spend time with. And then I write the script in verse. Um, and one reason that I've really stuck with writing verse scripts over the years is because even though we tend to pick subjects um, that are quite specific, like the First World War, the, the film that we're going to show in its entirety later today, the theme is really suicide. So <clears throat> rather than taking kind of a literal documentary um, or even um, narrative plot-based uh, approach um, to these subjects, 
I like poetry because it takes it straight out of the literal realm of meaning and puts it into the realm of metaphor. This also means um, that the characters, I see them less as individuals and more as ciphers and symbols. And I hope that this makes sense with the painting of the face. Uh, the eyes are always covered, usually um, by like some sort of masking device. And so we have a, like a reduction of the individual into a symbol. And we have the simplification of everyday speech um, into a formal speech, the speech of verse. And uh, so like I mentioned, the, the film today, This is Awful, um, which is spelled O-F-F-A-L, and, and that refers to um, the internal organs, which are uh, the main characters of, of the film, and they discuss with their body, um, who's recently died, basically what happens. So they're arguing amongst themselves about, um, yeah, what, what happened to them all recently. And, um, but we'll come back to that. I really wanted to begin with just a little bit about the film that's at MUMA right now. Uh, that film is called The Thong of Dionysus. It's, um, it's the last in a trilogy of films about the Minotaur and the Minotaur's family. Um, one reason we are very interested in Greek drama and me- Greek mytho- uh, mythology as a source is because... Um, you know, if you think back, uh, certainly Oedipus is a good example, um, but really uh, the prerequisite to Greek drama is, or Greek tragedy is family. You can't have tragedy without family. And, and we were kind of, we were really interested in that because nowadays, um, you know, you're kind of told you can choose your family, you can make your um, own groups. I think the Greeks might not have agreed with that, and so they saw family as something you were kind of uh, destined to have to deal with that you were born into. So uh, the main character in this film is Ariadne, and um, in the myth, uh, you can she marries Dionysus, and, and the story is that some of you probably know that Ariadne helps Theseus, the hero, uh, penetrate the labyrinth, find the Minotaur, the monster who's uh, terrorizing the people, and um, Theseus kills it with the help of Ariadne. And then Theseus kind of absconds from Crete, uh, takes Ariadne with him, and then basically dumps her, abandons her on the island of Naxos. So um, the Titian painting here is the moment at which Ariadne sees that Theseus has has abandoned her and um, she's grieving and mourning and um, probably calling him a jerk. And then Dionysus is kind of sweeping down from the heavens because she's somehow caught his eye and um, it's like a surprise wedding and there's like cheetahs and um, maneads. And um, I thought that was kind of a a silly story. one thing that um, is really interesting about mythology is that um, it's not, the stories aren't, um, there's no hegemony really. Um, and so there's like different islands will have different interpretations of the story. There's a later interpretation that says that um, 
when Ariadne saw that Theseus had abandoned her, she um, hanged herself with the thread from her spindle. And when I read that version of the myth, I thought that that had kind of the ring of truth to it. Um, So here's Ariadne in her sleeping pose right before she wakes up and um, realizes what what sort of new reality she's in. Uh, So at the top is is a Greek... um, an ancient Greek statue, and the bottom is a Jeff Koons plaster cast with a gazing ball. Um, This is a still from the Thong of Dionysus. Um, So Ariadne is in despair on the couch, and um, the Menaeids are behind her trying to convince her uh, not to commit suicide. Um, And I, I guess... One thing, one connection between Ariadne and the film that we'll show you, the film about um, the the different story of of the suicide, is that Ariadne is really this image of kind of the the slumbering self, the self that doesn't have the the pain of awareness yet, and it's a silent self, and so often the voices. Well, by necessity, the voices of the dead um, are ghosts. And uh, so, yeah, that's the the one that we'll show you is is essentially a ghost story. Um, So to continue a little bit with Ariadne and the Thong of Dionysus, I just wanted to show you this short clip. It's kind of a process clip showing... Uh, one of the more complicated moments in the video and uh, so our sets usually follow a really whoops uh, sorry it just jumped on us I'll start over here okay so Like I was saying, our sets usually follow with the simple model of early cinema where theater is really more the dominant language of presentation. The camera is fixed and it's more just kind of performing on a stage. But in this particular sequence of the video, we needed to illustrate clearly these different worlds that Ariadne was in above, Ariadne and Pasiphae, and Priapus below in the labyrinth um, chasing and trying to seek out the Minotaur. In our case, it was a church gymnasium, and the church gymnasium's basement was our labyrinth. And so we really wanted to illustrate that space. In order to do this, we need to do some trickery that we don't normally do in our films. Okay, so um, now that Pat has introduced a little bit of how the films come together, um, we can we can present a little bit of the research for uh, this is awful. So um, 
This is a print by Gustave Doré from 1870, and it illustrates a poem from the 1840s called The Bridge of Sighs. It's by Thomas Hood. He was a um, kind of early Victorian poet. Uh, Hood was a friend of Charles Dickens, and along with Dickens, he helped pioneer um, social justice literature. And of course, Dickens' example is quite well known. He used the form of the novel to criticize social institutions such as uh, the workhouse and... uh, money lending practices and lawyers and you know um so hood like dickens was very interested um in social problems and trying to uh use his art to um interrogate those one problem that hood was uh very concerned about and interested in was the problem of suicide um London in the Victorian era was extremely harsh, especially for women who didn't have the protection um, of uh, family or um, women, of course, had less options to work. They were just very vulnerable. And um, in many cases, uh, desperate young women would commit suicide by throwing themselves off one of the bridges in London. So Hood wrote this um, poem called The Bridge of Sighs in which uh, the narrator, a male narrator, is walking along the banks of the Thames. He finds the body of a dead young woman who's coincidentally very beautiful and picks her up, cradles her in his arms and starts castigating the city of London for its um, uh, unfeeling heart towards uh, the needy and uh, it's quite marvelous poem. Um, Hood himself was not only um, writing social justice poems, he was really a a master of comic verse. And um, this is one of his his own woodcuts. Um, I'm afraid it's, it's not quite legible, but so the caption on this woodcut is called Civil War, and all these guys are being very civil, saying oh, my compliments, don't get up. Um, so they're being very civil in their, in their war. Um, Hood, Hood is one of, I think, three, three artists that mean a lot to me that for whom punning is, a, is not just kind of like the cherry on top, it is the whole Sunday. And they really think through wordplay. And so here's uh, Hood in the painting on the left, James Joyce at the bottom, of course, famous for his um, his puns and his um, lavicious wordplay in Ulysses. And also um, Marcel Duchamp is, is Man Ray. And so many of the titles of his works are these very ingenious um, puns and wordplay in French. And you can't really understand these artists without taking their wordplay really seriously. And um, so... They're, they're really kind of my heroes in, in that regard when it comes to, to my own wordplay. Um, but so to kind of go back to this epidemic of Victorian working class suicide, it wasn't just Thomas Hood that was um, concerned, concerned with uh, the problem, uh, like the actuality of, of the problem, but also incorporating the imagery of the problem into artwork. Um, so here is a, um, a pre-Raphaelite painting by Frederick Watts called Found Drowned. It's from 1850, so six years after Thomas Hood's poem. 
And I wanted to read you just a very short excerpt from the poem so you can hear what it sounds like because it's very unusual for a, a poem with a theme as serious as suicide. So like I said, the narrator finds the young woman by the banks of the river and, <clears throat> and he says, take her up tenderly, lift her with care, fashioned so slenderly, young and so fair. Air her limbs frigidly, stiffen too rigidly, decently, kindly, smooth and compose them, and her eyes close them, staring so blindly. So you can certainly hear that uh, the rhymes like frigidly, rigidly, those triple rhymes. That's very unusual for, for serious poetry. Um, it's really, you can really hear Thomas Hood, the master of the comic form. Also this... Um, Air her limbs frigidly. Da, 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 da. I mean, that's the same. It's the same meter as the charge of the light brigade. So, um, it's a, it's a again not just the rhyming, but also the meter. Really, I think we can feel Hood trying to make this poem as popular as he can and still have it be meaningful on the subject matter that he's trying to critique. Another example of uh, just the the widespread imagery of this kind of um, young, fallen Victorian heroine who's also dead um, is, is this face. Uh, this is L'Inconnu de la Seine. She's from the 1880s. Um, the story was that um, the morgue master in Paris was brought the body of an unknown woman who drowned in the river and was so struck by her beauty and innocence or whatever that he made a cast of her face this cast then became like extremely pop popular decoration. It was like you know having the right poster in your dorm room or something. If you had this blaster cast on your wall, you were broadcasting loud and clear um, that you had a romantic um, view on life. So I think John Keats had a copy of this. Goethe had a copy of this. Um, it was really really widespread, and of course. It's entirely fictional. The, the victims of drownings are, are very rarely beautiful. Um, it's, a, it's a gruesome way to die. The, the Inconnu de Seine has a very strange uh, current um, iteration. She lives on um, in the form of uh, a resuscitation dummy, like when you practice for CPR or something, um, when you when you get your certificate after the training, you have to do practice on, on this model. And she has the face of uh, L'Inconnu de, de la Seine. She's called Rassasi Annie, um, and she's called the most kissed face in the world. Have any of you met her? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, these things really um, stick around. So the other thing that we were interested when we thought about, um, like, how can we kind of make something that kind of draws on these, not just like the issue of, of suicide, which of, of course is an eternal issue and doesn't go away, um, and the presentation of suicide in, in art, um, like, like Thomas Hood's uh, poem, and like... Um, this is another uh, um, pre-Raphaelite uh, painting, John Everett Millay's um, picture of Ophelia. 
when you think about Ophelia, what, definitely one of literature's most famous suicides, it's not a mystery why, why she kills herself. She, she does so because um, things, aren't, things aren't what they should be in her life. Uh, Hamlet, who she loves, won't talk seriously to her. He's um, trying to get revenge for his father. She's abandoned by her brother. And so she can't have what she wants, so she kills herself. Um, it's a similar narrative with Juliet. Juliet can't have the life with Romeo that uh, she de- so desperately wants. And so this is um, her way of dealing with it. So it's not, it's not mysterious at all. And, of course, um, one of the dynamics of, I think, suicide in real life that's so different from suicide in art is that it's, it's almost never that obvious. And it's one of the unique pains of suicide uh, as, a, as a tragedy is that the questions of why can really never be answered. The, the event is so drastic that there is nothing comparable in life that would be commensurate to an act, uh, to the act of suicide. Um, so, you know, the last thing that uh, suicide does is provide an answer. So I think... Um, I think we were taking that as a question into the film that we made. Um, and I just, I just wanted to, again, show you some more examples of, of this kind of, uh, this image that I think built up for us of this um, woman who's beautiful. Let's see, she's beautiful, she's dead. Um, she's dead by her own hand. But I think very importantly, she's a silent woman. This is part, uh, this is what makes the trope um, so, uh, I think, meaningful in the Victorian era where there's all this crisis about um, women speaking and hysteria and the need to keep women, um, you know, respectable and proper. And silence is a big component of that. And, of course, here in, in Roy Lichtenstein's Drowning Girl from 1863, she says, I don't care, I'd rather sink than call Brad for help. So... I, I mean, of course, Lichtenstein is, is having a go at this trope, but it's very interesting that she, she's saying, I won't say anything. I'm going to remain silent. Um, and uh, finally, just... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that, that a trope is, is truly living on when someone makes a lolcat of it. So, so Pat's going to speak for a little while. So, for for this is awful. Um, we wanted to design a very simple set, um, much again like what I was saying earlier about a sort of th- theatrical model. And so we use this very straight-on, simple theater stage. Um, but in general, in our work, we want our sets, which you'll see from this um, video, that. I do a lot of the sets as virtual constructions um, digitally so that we have the flexibility to take the footage that we shoot almost entirely on green screen and then match it into a virtual space. But we do always want the sets to sort of stylistically align with all of the handmade, hand-painted, physical set elements and tools and props and the costumes that Mary is making and the painting of the face. And so that the whole thing kind of hopefully seamlessly blends together. I think a clumsy foot like 
pedestrian. So boring, spending all day with the flooring. So that's just a short clip, but we'll be showing you the rest. But I, I just wanted to show you a couple other elements to the sets. And again, it's something that we commonly use where if I'm constructing a virtual set for our footage, Mary will provide me with uh, imagery and textures. In this case, we wanted to have the set. We, we were considering our our uh, our morgue to essentially be kind of like a medical school morgue where... The, in this case, my character has just finished an instruction with students. And so we wanted to have these elements to the set that clarified that this was a, kind of a classroom environment. So Mary copied and altered these various anatomical posters. Um, you can't see it on the posters, but they actually have little bits of poetry and text that Mary invented for the actual... Uh, posters themselves and then we also um, have a lot of handmade elements uh, I looked at a lot of old autopsy tools so things like bone saws, rib shears, scalpels hemostats and made them out of plywood and then Mary paints them and of course our the biggest set element was the actual autopsy table which we made from scratch after looking at several designs and structures and we wanted something again that would fit in with our uh, sort of overall hand painted handmade um, look of the of the films here's Mary beginning painting the table um, <clears throat> this is just two different versions of our actual filming set so on the left, you see the, the, the setup as we used it for shots from above on the corpse, which you'll see in the video, and when there were scenes with the corpse and the doctor. And then on the right is the scenes where we're shooting with Mary playing this kind of ghost-like version of the corpse. And we wanted to use this kind of age-old trope of transparency and have this ghost figure, so we had to shoot all of that stuff separate and, and on kind of an entirely green screen set. And also uh, one of the very important elements in our work in general is Mary's makeup, which she does herself. This is just a short uh, time lapse showing the Mary applying the makeup for the heart character. So there are these organ characters in the video that you'll see that are sort of arguing with each other, including the heart. And that time lapse is probably, what, like an hour and a half or something? <laughs> so the, the makeup time is usually one of the longest stretches of the production. And so on the left, you see how the brain ended up looking. And on the right is how we actually had to shoot the individual organs. Um, they needed to be these separate characters floating above the space. So we shot them each separately in there, and we had to kind of synchronize their arguments, and we realized that we needed to have uh, Mary be very still for these shots, so we had to rig up this slightly medieval brace to keep her head still and shoot these uh, short performances with the organs, uh, organs monologues. And then also, finally, we had a little sequence with the dismembered hand and foot arguing from inside the refrigerator in the morgue. So we had to shoot those separately, and so this is Mary performing the hand sequence.
And so with that, I think we'll just cut to showing you the video.